script pipeline reviews screenplays and TV pilots to connect writers with Hollywood's top producers and managers. For over 20 years, the company has helped launch the writing careers of some of the industry's brightest talent, resulting in spec sales totaling over $7 million. The deadline for this year's screenwriting and TV writing seasons is May 1st. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are doing our very first mentorship episode where we are helping one of our listeners workshop their pilot from inception to final draft. So without further ado, we are pleased to introduce the writer who'll be along with us for this ride, our mentee, Paul Chang. Hey welcome. guys. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, really excited to be here. Huge fan of the show, and I was really thrilled to be uh, selected for this uh, mentorship. I'm here to learn, and uh, looking forward to a great experience. That's awesome. We're very happy that you are along with us for this ride. This week, we are going to be covering a rough series overview of Paul's new pilot idea, so let's get into it. So just to recap the idea behind this mentorship and our goal with it, it's going to be a monthly workshop where we help a writer create a new original TV pilot script from the inception all the way through to the final draft. Now, we also want you, the listener, to be following along with this process and starting to work on your next idea all the way through to the script, whether it's using your writing group or on our Facebook group or Patreon. We really want to make this an interactive experience that everyone can benefit from. And just to clarify again, we will be working with Paul's new idea all the way through this mentorship. It's not a rotating uh, segment of writers. So let's get to know our writer, Paul, a little bit better. Can you briefly share with our listeners what your background is and what got you into TV writing? Yeah, sure. So um, I was actually born in Australia. You may not be able to tell that with my accent, but that's <laughs> we, why we have that in common. Oh, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's why we look so alike. <laughs> but yeah, so I was born in Australia and I actually mainly grew up in Hong Kong. So I went to middle school and high school over there and then came over to the U.S. when I was a teenager to go to college. And when I was in college, I got into improv and sketch. And that was really my way into writing. I really fell in love with it. And it was like a huge part of my college experience. And then when I graduated, I kept up with comedy. So I was working as a management consultant. So I was, you know, travel all around the country on different projects for work. But I kept up with comedy. So I would write in the mornings, evenings, on weekends. I was taking classes at UCB and The Annoyance. And one day I just realized like, hey, doing comedy stuff and writing is what I'm really passionate about. And that's what brought me out here to LA to really pursue that. Excellent. And do you have any particular TV shows or movies that inspire you? Yeah, for sure. So stuff that I've been watching recently that I've loved, um, Barry, mm-hmm. awesome show, really enjoying Fleabag, Catastrophe, You're the Worst. I also really loved Big Mouth. Uh, yeah, so th- those are just a few that really enjoyed recently. I was just pointing out to Alex earlier that they have the posters up for Barry season two now, and they're just like ads for Gene M. Cousineau. Oh yeah. uh, (laughs) Consultant to the stars or whatever it is. And they're on like bus seats and stuff. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. So going back to your comedy writing, you started off doing a sketch and improv. When did you start to write TV pilot scripts and how many of those have you kind of worked on up until now? When I got into TV writing and screenwriting, I started off just doing spec scripts. So I wrote a few, I wrote um, one for Rick and Morty, I wrote one for Master of None, and I wrote one for You're the Worst as well. So I wrote three spec scripts before I tackled my first pilot. So since then, I've written two features and two pilots. So this will be my third pilot. Excellent. And what kind of success have you had with your pilots and your samples? Yeah, so I've placed in a couple of competitions. I was a finalist and semifinalist in Slam Dance, Final Draft Big Break, and... uh, 
the tracking board launchpad competition. And most recently I got accepted to the Cape Writing Fellowship. So that's actually going on right now. I had my first session just this morning, really excited for it. Uh, I was being paired with an, an industry mentor and uh, it seems like they have a really awesome curriculum, both on the craft sites, so they're going to be helping me rewrite one of the pilots that I applied with, as well as on the business side. So getting us up to speed on, you know, how to take meetings, how to get repped and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, Congratulations. That's yeah. Congrats. We did choose Paul first, just saying we got in there before he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and to that point, let's talk a little bit about how we selected uh, Paul, because if you might remember, this paper team mentorship is sort of the evolution of our paper tees competition. And from our pool of all our paper tees entries, we asked a few of those people to send us the full pilot script version of their teasers. And from that pool, we then asked uh, several additional questions about the goals, as well as a couple of log lines for shows they would want to work on next. Yeah. And there were a few reasons why we chose Paul out of all of the other very talented writers who were in consideration. So first and foremost, we thought he wrote a great pilot script that ticked all the boxes for us and what a pilot script needs to do. Secondly, we thought he also had some really good ideas for shows to follow it up with and work on next. And those two things are obviously very important to being a TV writer, you know, the writing on the page, and then also your kind of ideas for what that is next. That's what you're going to be talking about in general meetings with people. And then lastly, you know, there were still a few areas where we felt we could help Paul develop and become a stronger writer as there are with everyone. So, you know, we felt that he would be a amenable to the development process and taking notes and working well with us over the course of this. And once we settled on Paul, we gave him our preference order of the log lines that he pitched to us of what we thought had uh, the most potential as his next project. And Paul was the one who ultimately picked the show he wanted to write next. So what was the project that you landed on and what was that log line that you originally sent us? Yeah, sure. So the uh, name of the show is called Mid-Death Crisis. And the log line is when a depressed Grim Reaper in the midst of a midlife crisis stumbles into a motivational seminar, she decides to complete the life-affirming motivational program. Excellent. And it's important to note that besides that basic log line that you pitched to us a few weeks ago, we don't really know anything else about the project, like characters, arcs, or even what that pilot is. Uh, and this is, in fact, what this very episode of the mentorship is going to be about, is taking a look at what Paul is going to be uh, pitching and explain to us what that mid-death crisis show is on a broad level. Right. And this is meant to reflect that kind of stage of your creative process where you've had a good idea, you think you're onto something, but you start sharing it with the people around you and getting a little bit of feedback about that and whether they think you know they're excited about it as you are and uh, what you should be focusing on. Absolutely. And there are two reasons to that point where we wanted to start with this basic series overview and not, let's say, uh, a beat sheet. The first thing is that the goal of this mentorship is to produce a pilot script. Uh, this isn't a feature or a novel that can exist on its own island. It's the first half hour, in this case, of a bigger narrative that is a TV show. So if you listen to any of our many paper team episodes on the topic of pilots, then you know a pilot script needs to service multiple things, including establishing a series. You can't really start outlining or drafting a pilot without having some basic idea of what the pilot is trying to set up. Yeah, exactly. It's not the kind of thing where you can just jump in and start writing a pilot and hope that it all works out okay. It's, you know, it's a very <laughs> important part of the TV writing process to be thinking about this big picture stuff before you even put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the, the second reason why we wanted to start with this is because this first episode is also meant as a sort of message in a bottle episode. Not a bottle episode, a message in a bottle episode. <laughs> <A> time capsule. <laughs> We're at such an early stage of the process 
process that anything we'll talk about relating to this project is still being figured out by Paul, which means it's the perfect step to look back on at the end of this journey once the script is complete and most things about the show have been finalized. Right. And at this point, nothing is going to be set in stone like anyone's creative process. You need to always be open to things changing and adapting and improving as you go along. So the end result may end up looking nothing like what's pitched now. It may end up being similar in many areas, but not in others. So it'll be interesting to look back and see how it has evolved. And now let's get into Mid-Death Crisis. All right, Paul, so just take us through kind of a rough uh, overview of Mid-Death Crisis and the ideas that you have behind it. Sure. So before I moved to LA, I lived in New York. And for several years, I worked at a job that I hated. It was so crushing, it was stressful, and above all, it felt meaningless. And talking to my friends at the time, I realized that that feeling can come from any kind of job. So for me, it was a corporate job, but it can come from working in retail or food service or politics or just the never-ending treadmill of the gig economy. That feeling of having the life force sucked out of you by your job, of feeling a little bit dead inside, it's the same. And so this is a show about that feeling and how finding something that sparks a sense of purpose can give you a new lease on life. So with that said, Mid-Death Crisis is a half-hour dark comedy about literal death, a grim reaper named Mo. When we meet Mo, she's depressed and firmly in the midst of a midlife crisis because she hates her job. She used to take pride in bringing death and ferrying souls, but now, for the first time in millennia, she feels burned out and sick of it all. She wants out. But the thing is, there is no out. She's stuck in this job forever. So in the pilot, Mo finds herself at a motivational seminar when she's assigned to ferry the soul of a man who dies of a heart attack. While there, she overhears an inspirational speech given by the charismatic motivational speaker. Think Tony Robbins, except she's a five foot four Latina woman named Tina. And something about that speech moves Mo, ignites a spark of curiosity that grows into a steady flame over the course of the pilot, at the end of which she decides to complete the life affirming motivational program, thereby kicking off the series. Mid-Death Crisis will follow her on that journey. In short, this is a show about death, learning what it's like to feel alive. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the world of the show. So it's set in a version of New York that resembles our own. There's hot dog vendors on street corners, steam coming out of manhole covers, and of course, that smell. But also, Grim Reapers walk the earth among us. They look like normal people, not skeletons in dark cloaks. And by the way, Mo appears as a middle-aged Asian woman. Now, Reapers have two responsibilities, to bring death and to ferry souls to the underworld. They bring death by touching people, skin-to-skin -skin contact, after which the person dies in 24 hours. As a result, for Mo and other Reapers, intimacy is out of the question, which is one of the reasons Mo has become isolated and lonely over the years. Also, these days, ferrying souls looks more like Ubering souls. <laughs> Reapers use an Uber-like app, which tells them where their next soul pickup will be. After pickup, they drive the soul to one of the many portals to the underworld scattered across Earth. For Mo, the closest portal is located in a noodle restaurant in Queens. Which leads us to the bureaucracy of death. As the world population has grown, the underworld has had to become increasingly corporate to keep up with the high volume of souls. Gone are the days of death riding in on a black-winged horse and a golden carriage made of skulls looking like a badass. Nobody's got time for that. These days, it's all about efficiency and hitting your numbers. And don't even get Mo started on maintaining a high star rating average for her trips. Which is all to say, Mo's job sucks. It's boring, it's stressful, it's a grind. So, the main characters. So we've met Mo, who's a reaper who looks like a middle-aged Asian woman, but has been around since the dawn of humanity. At the start of the show, she's cynical, jaded, and depressed. As the series progresses, she becomes increasingly invested in the motivational program. 
For the first time in a long time, she feels happy and alive. And at the end of the first season, she decides she wants to become a motivational trainer herself. Tina, the charismatic founder of the motivational program, which is called Zest. And yes, that's Zest with an exclamation mark. She is ambition personified. At the start of the season, her dream is to become as influential and successful as Tony Robbins and help people unlock their personal potential because of her own difficult childhood, which she managed to overcome. Over the course of the series, her almost maniacal desire to help people will evolve into a darker tendency, the desire to control. Through Tina, we'll get a glimpse of the dark side of motivational programs and how some of them toe the line between support group and cult. As Mo finds the light, Tina will descend into darkness. Fred is an earnest and bumbling middle-aged seminar attendee who quickly develops a crush on Mo, and she finds herself resisting a sneaking suspicion that the feeling might be mutual. As the series progresses, Mo will find it harder and harder to keep Fred at arm's length because of her growing feelings of affection. And finally, Mother Time, the boss of all Reapers. She recently took over the underworld from Father Time and has something to prove. She expects all the Reapers to hit their numbers and has no qualms about banishing them to purgatory if they fail to deliver. And so the pilot in broad strokes. We start off by seeing Mo performing her Reaper duties and are introduced to the world of the show. She picks up the soul of a guy who has drunkenly fallen off the roof of a Brooklyn brownstone. In the back of Moe's beat-up Camry, the guy has a full-on existential crisis, grappling with his death and questioning whether he lived his life to the fullest. But it's clear that for Moe, this is just another tedious day at work, especially when she has to clean up the guy's vomit later that night. When Moe receives a low star rating from the soul, she's accosted by her boss, Mother Time, who tells her that if she doesn't raise her average rating soon, she'll be banished to purgatory. In her tiny apartment, Mo receives a visit from her friend and fellow Reaper, Gerald, who asks her to pick up one of his souls the next day as a favor. Mo begrudgingly agrees and so finds herself at the motivational seminar the next day as she searches for the soul. While there, she gets swept up in Tina's inspirational speech, which jolts something deep within her. Unable to stop thinking about the experience over the next few days, she shirks some of her Reaper duties to go back to the seminar, where Tina challenges the attendees to get out of their comfort zone and do something crazy they would normally never do. Moe's next assignment is to pick up a suicidal man, and with Tina's words ringing in her ears, she engages him and convinces him not to kill himself. This first taste of autonomy and rebellion gives Moe a huge rush. Still riding on that high, Mo signs up for the 10-week motivational seminar as Gerald bursts into her apartment. He explains that Mo convincing the man not to kill himself has triggered a chain reaction that they have to fix before Mother Time finds out. And with that, the pilot of Mid-Death Crisis comes to an end. And so to wrap up with the engine of the show, each episode, Mo will struggle and fail to fulfill both the obligations of the motivational program and her Reaper responsibilities. Oh, thank you. I have to say this is excellent. And it hits a lot of the points that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very well-formed pitch that kind of hit a lot of the boxes and the things that people usually have questions about when these kind of pitches come through. So we've gathered our thoughts on a mid-death crisis, but before we get into them, let's ask Paul, first of all, why did you choose mid-death crisis as your next sample? Firstly, there's that personal connection. So in terms of having an emotional in to the story, it made a lot of sense. And out of all of the log lines that I pitched to you, I think it was the one that I could sort of see most clearly in my head. And so 
uh, it made sense for me to take that one and run with it in terms of trying to flesh it out more. Absolutely. I think this is something that we both loved uh, was that personal connection to the material and the way that you connected on a thematic and, and character level to what was going on. So that was really appreciated. Yeah, and certainly it's not something that we knew from the initial logline pitch before you just presented it to us. We just kind of loved it as a concept and thought it had potential. But then hearing you starting with that personal connection to it is a really great way to start off a, you know, this isn't really a formal pitch like you'd be doing to a development executive or a producer or something like that. But even just in explaining it to other people, it's really important to say this is where it comes from inside of me. And this is why I am the only person who can write this, or at least I'm, you know, well versed in what this world feels like and is. So here are a couple of things that we really liked about this, you know, I guess, pitch and the way that uh, Paul presented it to us. Firstly, there was a good level of brevity there. He touched on a number of important points about the show and the key things that we needed to know about it, but didn't ever really get bogged down in one particular thing, explaining the vast backstory of one of the characters or the the in-depth, you know, like what's on the menu of the noodle place in in, you know, in Queens or whatever. So, um, you know, I think that we didn't, we never got bored or caught up in our heads of like, wait, what's this again? It was just kind of moving from one point to the next at the pace it needed to. There was a lot of great world building uh, in terms of the structure of how the hierarchy of that world and the, the sort of the Grim Reaper setup was mentioned. I really appreciate it. I especially love the little details about the, the Uberization of it all and how everything is being transformed into this gig economy and tying what we're going through in real life to that world and that comedy conceptually i thought that it was it was good because it gave us a more of a unique angle on something that could potentially be a cliche there are a lot of pilots and, and established things that uh, have you know the supernatural walking working as a corporation it's like well heaven's now a bureaucracy and we're following an angel who's letting them in or that kind of thing like that's a pitch that does get thrown around a lot but the fact that there were enough unique elements of this and, and kind of a way in that felt new and fresh i think um, certainly speaks to the strength of the pitch yeah i also feel like to your point there's been a lot of shows now on the air about this aspect of death. Uh, obviously, The Good Place is a recent example, but you can also look at Dead Like Me, which is a Brian Fuller show on Showtime from a few years ago. Or and, Reaper. Yeah. Or Reaper, exactly. But all those shows, I feel like, are different enough from Mid-Death Crisis. And I think, Paul, you did a great job at differentiating yourself, not just in terms of the setup and the world, but really in terms of the characters. I think that's the key differentiator here is the arcs and the themes that you want to explore with your characters. And we'll get into those uh, in a moment. But I really enjoyed seeing sort of a a more diverse and more interesting approach to that universe than uh, just your typical uh, Reaper type character. Right. I think if it had been pitched with a generic like, well, it's just the Grim Reaper as you know them, it's the trope, blah, 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 it would not have been as interesting. I think that one of the things that was great about this pitch was it was kind of effortlessly inclusive. You know, there wasn't a big deal made about any of the particular characters being women or people of color or anything like that, but it still felt natural to the world and it didn't just go straight to the usual cliches. And another thing was just in terms of the presentation of the the pitch of the series overview was that there were bits of humor sprinkled throughout, you know, you're laying the pipe work of everything that's coming, but then you were stopping to get a laugh every now and then, which helps keep it entertaining as well as informative. Yeah, because the way you present yourself and present the content is just as important as the content itself, especially if you look at something like a comedy, you want to get those laughs in. If not, then it's kind of this awkward reading (laughs) the script (laughs) aspect of it. I definitely agree. You did a great job that you definitely hit a a lot of the points that we wanted to, but uh, there are a number of areas 
where we might want to ask a few more questions and just delve deeper into those. First of all, in terms of the concept and uh, connecting sort of the dots there, why did you feel motivational speaking as an element was the way to go in terms of connecting it to death and grim reapers? Yeah, for sure. So from a personal perspective, I just find that whole world to be really fascinating. Like when I was growing up, my dad always had these like shelf fulls of self-help books. Like some of them were more personal, but some of them were also kind of, you know, in the business world, like how to, you know, how, how can you build up your career? So I was always just kind of surrounded by that. And I recently watched this movie about Tony Robbins, the uh, I'm not your guru. And just getting a, a glimpse into that was really interesting to me. And that world is something that I've sort of been interested in in a long time. And another world that I kind of mentioned the pitch that I'm interested in is cults and specifically how there's this kind of fine line where some of these motivational speakers build up such a strong charismatic persona. And then it sort of at some point tips over and becomes like this really dark thing where they're like controlling people. But it always starts off as this very uplifting and motivational thing. So that whole world is something that I've just been really interested in a long time. And I felt like it dovetailed really nicely with this idea of like a midlife crisis because of that, I think the irony built into that concept where you have this personification of death that goes into a program that's specifically designed to show you what it's like to feel alive and how to live your life to the fullest. Yeah, that's definitely an important part of coming up with a strong concept is finding the conflict within it inherently and the, the kind of juxtaposition and irony of ideas that go in there. Because just from reading a logline, you can already sense the, the conflict in the comedy that's going to come out of that, as opposed to having to explain how it then results in story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on uh, motivational speaking as a concept. Is it something you want to explore on a thematic level in terms of, is this good? Is this bad? Uh, does it reflect good on this character and bad on this other? Or is this something more plot driven where it's more about the ways of setting up the emotional arcs of these characters? I think it's definitely something that I would want to explore. I think it's a really interesting world. And what I find really compelling about it is that how it can be different things to different people. So for some people, I have no doubt that it's really beneficial to them. You know, it, it really can help kind of break people out of these ruts and be a huge source of inspiration. But then, you know, depending on the specific program and the people who are doing the program, it can tip over into this darker thing. And, and I know people who have got caught up in, in the darker side of it. And so this duality is definitely something that I'm interested in exploring. I don't think it's just sort of a plot device. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And I was curious to how much time we spend in that world of motivational speaking, how it's structured. Is it sort of like a weekly seminar? Is it a 10 day resort conference type thing? Like how often are we visiting that world and how much time are we spending in more of the supernatural world, ferrying souls? Like how do we kind of split our time between them? Yeah. So the way I was thinking about it was each episode would be like a new sort of mini lesson imparted by the motivational speaker, or it could be if not a lesson, maybe some kind of exercise designed to teach something specific within the context of this motivational seminar. So it might be like, this week, try out meditation and carve out time in your day for meditation and, and introspect. But then that kind of directly runs up against Mo's responsibilities as Reaper because, you know, she needs to be ferrying souls. So how does she carve out time? And so mm -hmm. those kind of conflicts, I think, are the driver of it. Um, in terms of how much time we spend in the supernatural world. So just to clarify, one of the things that I wanted going in was for it to be pretty grounded. So we're not going into like hell or heaven or a purgatory or anything like that. I think they're just alluded to. And for the most part, this actually could just be a show about someone living in New York and kind of struggling with their job. So 
we see the supernatural world insofar as she's Ubering these souls around, but I don't think we're actually like literally seeing it. So it's like a very grounded way of yes. approaching that. I do really like the, 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 the framework that you mentioned. It kind of reminds me of Barry and, and right. the Henry Winkler character sort of coaching yeah. uh, Barry in his acting lessons. So I think that's a really interesting approach of framing every episode as its own conflict with a, a lesson to take away. But you also just mentioned the fact that we would keep our eyes on the grounded level in New York and with this person and not really the supernatural element. I'm kind of curious about if you're at all interested in exploring the bureaucracy of death and how far you want to look at, for example, the administration aspect, because uh, The Good Place, even though it has its own uh, craziness into it, it really portrays this insanity in a very grounded way, almost like an office drama. So I'm curious to see if that's something you're at all interested in or if you're really 100% all in on we're going to be following Mo in New York and that's kind of it. I think it was going to be more staying with Mo in New York and kind of like what you're saying before, keeping it very grounded. I think the bureaucracy of the underworld, I think of it as being pretty opaque, both to us and to Mo. So just how kind of like when you're at the bottom of a corporation or, or your job, you don't necessarily have insight into like what's going on in, you know, in the boardrooms and, and at the CEO level. So I think it's the same with Mo and we're kind of seeing the world through her eyes. So once in a while, you know, Mother Time will come in and she'll get some new sort of directive that impacts her life directly. But in terms of what's going on in those higher tiers of the underworld, I think that that's sort of purposely kind of mysterious. And we might get little slivers now and then, but it's not really like a driver of the show. Is that something you are thinking of in terms of it being a long-term mystery that she could explore? I've thought about it a little bit. You know, I, I was playing around with the idea of her potentially, as she gets increasingly invested in the motivational program, like at the end of the season, she would decide to become a trainer. That might be accompanied by an escalation in the world of her job. So she might get a promotion. So I was thinking the two worlds would interact in an interesting way. So, you know, as she goes through the program and becomes more confident and charismatic and becomes more comfortable with herself, that results in her getting better at her job. You know, she's able to form a better bond with the souls that she's faring and gets higher ratings. And so as a result of that, she gets promoted. And so I was thinking of it potentially as a way to sort of ramp up the conflict and keep things interesting as the season goes on. All right, ramp up yeah. the tension. I think it's a smart idea, though, to keep it grounded, at least for, you know, the first season, because we do have those shows like The Good Place that spend all of their time in the bureaucracy of the afterlife. And we've had shows that have tread that ground before. So finding your own unique angle into that world and just having it as a device in there, I think works well. One of the questions I had were about the stakes of everything. And you mentioned, you know, getting a low rating in this app ends up in them being sent to purgatory. I guess I'm just curious, what does purgatory mean for a grim reaper and and what you know if she does bad at her job what is the end result of that so first of all on the ratings what i had in mind was that basically after people die part of the job of the reaper is to sort of calm them down and sort of prepare them for the transition to the next life and if they enter the underworld and are in a state of agitation that's when the soul gets like stuck in purgatory and so that's something that like no one wants like either they want them going to heaven or to hell, or they want them to go out to some specific place. They don't want them to just kind of get held up. So purgatory, in my mind, is just, it's kind of like the equivalent of getting fired. You just kind of get banished and it's bad news. And I should say as well that, you know, given this is still in the early stages, we don't necessarily expect you to have a fully fleshed out answer for every question of every possible part of it. So it's okay as well if you, you know, you're like, oh, I need to think more about this or that kind of thing. Too. Yeah. And I think the conversation is about sort of exploring these ideas that may need more exploring perhaps or are already settled in and sort of discussing how that can be improved. 
Is there a point where you would want to set up sort of the stakes of getting a low rating and actually seeing sort of the consequences of her not getting that high rating or whatever that actually means on a practical level? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting in terms of maybe like seeing another Reaper get banished there or something like that. For example, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but I think that's that like that makes a lot of sense to make the stakes concrete so that we understand, you know, if Mo doesn't raise her rating average, this will happen to her. I think, yeah, that might make sense, like in the first act or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And even what you were saying about to me, it wasn't intuitive that getting a low rating as a Reaper why does it matter that this dead person has a good time or not on their way to the end of the world? Cause they're going to be in the underworld. So I think that, you know, establishing that, like seeing the results of the, of the high stakes and also understanding why it's important for them to, to make it a smooth transition and that kind of thing is probably something that you'll end up wanting to set up early in the pilot. For sure. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like you need to sort of concretize the threat of the episode, especially if it's all dependent on whether or not Mo is getting that high rating. Uh, to me, at least from my own experience, it's very important to set up in the pilot sort of what it means if she doesn't get it and give a contrast to what she's actually losing if she goes sort of in that decision moment one way instead of the other. Yeah. And in terms of some of the devices that you mentioned, I was curious about the idea of this physical touch is what causes the death and they have 24 hours. What was the decision behind the 24 hours? Does that do something for the story? How does that play out? Yeah, I think it just sets up like a little bit of a ticking clock because then she can like either she or someone else can touch a character. And then we know that there's this ticking clock for that character. And I, it just seemed like a dramatic thing because I was playing around because, yeah, that's not set in stone necessarily. And mm -hmm. I was thinking of different ways to do it. Because in mythology, different iterations of the Reaper have different powers. So sometimes they don't have any causal power when it comes to that. They just pick up the soul. In other iterations, they cause the death. And so that I thought, it, so first of all, I was considering whether I wanted to give Reapers the power to cause death at all. And then I decided to give them that power because I think it gives them more agency and it just seemed to mm -hmm. have more sort of dramatic power that way. And then in terms of the 24-hour time lag, it, it just seemed more interesting to me than them touching someone and them falling dead immediately because then it just seemed well you brought up barry it's kind of a similar thing of like it's like an on off switch that they yeah. can just kill someone uh, i'm curious if in in that 24-hour period can they reverse that decision or is it sort of a permanent oh that's really interesting i actually had not thought about that um i definitely want to now in my mind they it, it just hadn't come up, so I just assumed they would right. die. But I think that would be really interesting if they did have that power. Absolutely. I, I do think that 24-hour clock is an interesting component that adds complexity to that. And something you can play into it long-term if, um, let's say, she inadvertently touches someone or something happens and uh, there's a decision of whether or not she can reverse it or not, and, and that coming into play. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. And do you see Mo kind of going around with this person for the next 24 hours, helping them like wrap up their life? Is that part of the transition, or is it more a matter of touch this person, I'll come back for them later kind of thing. It's more that it's like touch this person and then she goes off and does her own thing. Like maybe she, you know, that's time that she can use for her own self or maybe she has other assignments. And then in 24 hours, she has to come back and pick up that person. To your point, I do like the idea that maybe long-term, especially if Mo is transitioning into this motivational type speaker, if she touches someone and the longer we go in the season, the deeper we go into the season, the more invested she is in this person that she's killing mm -hmm. as a motivational speaker, she's going to be helping that person. Right. I can uh, see her starting a speech with, what if you had 24 hours left to live? Yeah. <laughs> 
what would you do? I think there's ways of using that if that's uh, at all interesting long-term. Obviously, initially you want to set things up as they are and then change them later on. Just a, a quick logic question. Why hasn't Mo really heard of or been to a motivational speaking seminar before, especially since she's been around so long? Why is this sort of the why here, why now moment? I think it's like a lot of people who find themselves in motivational seminars. It's kind of by happenstance. Um, I think Mo is basically in a position where if someone pitched on and be like, hey, come to one of these things, she would be like, no, that sounds dumb, you know. But when she finds herself there, suddenly it's it's kind of a different story. And I feel like that kind of relates to me in a way. Like, I don't think I would ever sign up to one of those things. But maybe deep down, it's because like, I think it might be, it might have an impact on me if I actually was to find mm -hmm. myself in that situation. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious on that point, why Tina speaks to Mo on such a, a deep level in arguably such a short time, a speech or two, in such a way that Mo would just dismiss her millennia long responsibilities overnight almost. Why do you feel Tina taps into with her speech? Well, I think that's going to be in the writing of it, right. trying to figure out what precisely it is that has such a profound impact. But I, I don't think that it's sort of a, a complete 180 degree. I think it's kind of just enough of a hook in that Mo becomes curious and then she comes back. And then from there on out, we get this kind of snowball effect. But I think that first thing, it's going to be in the writing of it to set up like how, where Mo is emotionally in that first act and what precisely it is that Tina says that resonates with that exact thing she's going through. So it might be something about breaking out of a rut or I don't know, like feeling like you're, I, you know, I'm right. not really sure to be honest. That's perfectly fine. Actually, I do like the fact that you're still thinking about it because that's an element, uh, especially when you were talking about emotional conflicts and those key moments where a character sort of switches from one side to another, those points in the writing, which I find most interesting because it's sort of this explorative phase where you're not quite sure how are you going to get there and you're sort of figuring it out as you go. So that's uh, interesting. Well, I was going to say it also might be I have it in here as a speech, but it also might be like an exercise. You know, maybe she gets caught up in some kind of big group exercise and it, it triggers some revelation in her like, oh, hey, right. I'm not the only one going through this. Oh, there's actually like a support group here for me. I think part of the show is her feeling so isolated up to this point. And so part of it might be like, oh, wow, you know, for the first time, I'm able to connect with other people who are in a very similar sort of headspace. Yeah, it's kind of like those uh, seminars that are about social anxiety. And right. one of the exercises is like, all right, talk to three random people on the street. And then yeah. you can yeah. people. So it's a great thing to think about the why here, why now? Like, obviously, there's something emotionally. And Mo, I know in one of your earlier iterations, you mentioned, and I think you've worked that into another character now, but Mo being like a millennial reaper who's been around for like uh, half of their, their lifetime or whatever. And so so now, you know, she is actually having this mid-death crisis kind of thing. So that would be, I guess, the inciting incident of like, why is she not reflecting back on everything? But I think whatever it is that you end up finding there, there's just some way that it will tie into what she's being spoken to about in this motivational speaker. Right. So speaking of characters, it's difficult in, you know, a short pitch to communicate the full cast of characters necessarily. I think you did a good job of setting up the, the important ones. One of the ones I did have a question about was Fred as this, you know, other guy who's been involved in the motivational thing and his connection with her. I guess, what is it that makes him unique and memorable and ties into this in some way? To be honest, I haven't thought too much about Fred apart from his sort of function within the story as the person with whom Mo forms sort of this romantic relationship for the first time. I think in terms of what is going to get us on his side, he's going to have some kind of reason for being at the motivational seminar that I don't know whether he's sort of an aspiring entrepreneur or 
he's going through the loss of a loved one. Ooh, actually, that could be interesting. What if so- mm. he, he's going through the loss of a loved one and maybe even Mo had something to do with that? Oh, I'm just thinking yeah. out loud right now. But interesting, um, yeah. So I haven't really thought through what his deal is, but I think what's going to make him an interesting character is his reason for being at the seminar. And also, just by the way, the, the seminar is going to have its own little mini cast of sort of recurring characters, all of whom are in the same boat in terms of having big dreams, but not having the confidence to fulfill them or being stuck in some kind of rut. So I mentioned, yeah, maybe there's a aspiring entrepreneur. There's like a nervous teen who suffers from social anxiety. There's like the social media uh, influencer or like wannabe social media influencer. Yeah. Um, presumably I, these yeah. will kind of speak to some sort of reflection of what Mo's going through or her personality in an exaggerated kind of way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I do have to commend you for the whole intimacy angle. I do love the concept that because of her power, she can't really be intimate with anyone. I think that really speaks to where she is in her life. And this is a, a theme that, you know, we've seen explored as recently as Haunting of Hill House with uh, one of the sister characters who can't really touch people or obviously pushing the so I do love that. But just to go back on, on Fred, uh, I think it, it is a great mid-season moment if he realizes, oh my God, my ex-wife was right. murdered by Mo. And that's the cliffhanger. <laughs> one of the things I do like about this pitch as well is that it has some very clear themes that it's exploring. What made you want to explore these themes and what do you see as the core of it? Yeah. So I think it went back to this idea of like when you're trapped in a job, how it can sort of bleed over and permeate all these other parts of your life. So even, you know, even when you go home, you feel kind of like down and depressed and and just this idea of like, just feeling a little bit dead inside, that's something you kind of hear. And so, yeah, that was where the idea came from. And that was one of the main themes that uh, sort of got me onto this idea. The isolation of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Of feeling dead inside. and, And what is it that you can find that might break you out of it. So for me, like it was, it's literally been coming out here in, to LA to like pursue writing and pursue entertainment stuff. That's been the thing that has kind of broken me out of, out of this rut. And so I guess for me, it's been something like at the forefront as well. That's great that you're leaning into those themes and tying them to your characters and not just the, the characters themselves, but also the setup in the world. So that's really fantastic. But let's move on to sort of the pilot episode itself. I'm kind of curious why you chose this specific teaser opener as the beginning of your show. The main reason is to just set up the world and get some of that exposition about how the world works out of the way in sort of a visual way. You know, firstly, it communicates that Moza Grim Reaper, it shows that the sort of mechanic of the Uber type app, and then also the portal on the world. And it just kind of tees up establishing some of these important relationships like Mother Time. I think like Mother Time would show up at the noodle shop and and things like that. And then, yeah, in terms of like what could be a interesting cold open, I kind of had in mind that we'd see Mo just hanging out, you know, just living her life. Maybe she's reading a book or whatever it might be. And then this guy like splats on the pavement next to her and her lack of reaction is kind of like the hook in of like, oh, wow, why is this person reacting this way? And then the guy pops up and he's, he's surprisingly unscathed. And then there's the reveal that, oh, that's his soul and he's dead on the ground. And then that kind of leads us into the Uber ride. So I thought that was kind of, in, it might be an interesting way to go into the cold open. And yeah, just setting up the world in that first act. I would just say one note about that opener that I wouldn't want to set up the Mo touching the guy or, well, I guess it's really hard to do if there's a 24 hour clock. However, mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to clarify sort of the reason why that guy is dead is because of Mo, if that is a key element of the show. But I understand that it's very hard to convey, especially if there's a 24 hour time clock. So that's just a one note. Yeah, that's a really good note. That makes sense. I've thought about that a little bit. I was thinking that the guy might 
actually recognize Mo. He'd be like, oh my God, you're the person who like bumped into me at the supermarket right. or whatever. Yeah, so, something like that. Um, but I guess, yeah, I'll have to just kind of work it out in the... Yeah. Sure. So you touched on this in the pitch, but what do you see the kind of week-to-week conflict and the engine of the show being? Yeah, so I think the core conflict is Mo being unable to fulfill both the obligations of the uh, motivational program and her reaper responsibilities. So I didn't really touch on this in the pitch, but I had a couple of ideas of other episodes that I think help to illustrate it. So yeah, a couple um, example episodes that kind of illustrate this conflict. So when assigned to do a random act of kindness through the program, Mo agrees to make one last stop for a soul before taking him to the underworld. But he chains himself to a radiator and refuses to leave. So there's this idea of like, okay, she's doing this exercise that's going to be beneficial for her through the program, but as a direct result, like it interferes with her reaper duties. She has to fix that. So another idea here is when Tina stipulates that Mo has to, quote, be there unconditionally for another seminar attendee for one full day, Mo misses a soul pickup and the soul ends up going on a haunting rampage. So again, there's this idea of like, you know, trying to be a good seminar attendee, but that directly leading to issues with her professional life. Yeah, it's uh, sort of contrasting and conflicting those two themes and arcs of her being both uh, this seminar attendee and wanting to live in that world of being a motivational speaker, but also killing people essentially. Right. So we know the stakes in the supernatural world if she's failing at her job as a reaper. What do you feel like the stakes are in the motivational speaking world when she fails at her lessons and that kind of thing because of her responsibilities as a reaper? So I think one is just going to be disappointing the people that she forms a bond with. So I think she's going to form obviously like a strong bond with Tina. And so, yeah, feeling like she's letting her down and also Fred, but it may be more fundamentally feeling like she's letting herself down. Because I think one of these things about motivational speaking is that you're meant to really like take ownership of your own sort of mental well-being and your own health. And so I think, yeah, feeling like she's not living up to her full potential and falling back into old patterns. Um, there might be, actually be a, a theme in the show of like kind of relapsing and, and going back to that life that, you know, was ultimately detrimental to her and that constant struggle to kind of break out of that and find what it is that actually makes her happy. So you feel that being a Grim Reaper is almost like an addiction? Interesting. So I, I don't think it's an addiction in the sense that she sort of craves it, not in that sense, but it's something that she's trying to break out of. So I guess in that sense, she feels trapped by it, but that's more just because of you know her, her circumstance and being- It's more like an unhealthy lifestyle or a dead-end job or something yes. like that. that right, but, but to that point, is there a way for her to break out of this lifestyle without sort of dealing with the consequences of ending up in purgatory? Is there a way for herself to exile herself from this lifestyle? I need to think about that more. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I think that goes to like a world-building issue of like, is it possible for a Grim Reaper to stop being a Grim Reaper, right. basically? And maybe, yeah, I think that that might ha happen later on in terms of like mother time finding out what's going on and whether there's a way to sort of barter. Maybe she has to give up something really important in order to be able to break out and so I think that that would be like a long, yeah. sort of series long question. So this is definitely a long-term thing, but I, I definitely feel like it is important to think of elements like, is there a way out for her long-term? Yeah, Whether or not there is, I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, speaking of those kind of arcs over the series, I did like at the end that you had this kind of thing that sets off a chain reaction by Mo messing up her mission, and that kind of gives us this momentum into the series. But have you thought more about what that chain reaction would be and what it actually means for the world and the rest of the show? That I have not thought about too much. And I'm also not very wedded to that. Yeah, I think I think that my general idea for the pilot is that 
as the result of going to the seminar for those first few times, she does something to break herself out of the comfort zone. So in, in this iteration, it, she convinces someone to not kill himself, but I'm not really wedded to that. I think it could end up being something else in the first draft. Yeah. Maybe uh, she doesn't kill someone who then kills Mother Time. <laughs> or maybe she starts inspiring other Reapers to join this motivational conference thing. And, the, you know, it basically forms a Reaper union or starts or, like, breaking what, people. What about a Reaper thing? cult? She forms her own cult. <laughs> like a Blue Oyster cult? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Don't fear the Reaper? Okay. Is that the opening credits? <laughs> Don't fear the Reaper? I think that covers uh, most of our thoughts. We did want to ask you, though, what do you feel you want to work on next from here now that you have that uh, series overview? I think it's going to be kind of diving in and trying to break the story in earnest. So I have some general ideas in terms of what I see happening in the pilot, but just going in and making sure and thinking through some of these these awesome questions that you've brought up and thinking through uh, you know, what, what that pilot would actually look like in more detail. Yeah, I think that that's what we were thinking as well in terms of the next steps is maybe coming up with a rough beat sheet for the pilot episode because you can spend months sitting there fleshing out a Bible and having all these ideas about the world, but it's not really until you put them into practice and see how they intersect with story that you're going to realize, oh, this works great. No, that doesn't work so well. I need to change my ideas around that. Absolutely. So that will be probably our next step next month uh, in terms of this mentorship slash workshop process, uh, and that is the beat sheet of Paul's mid-death crisis pilot. Final thoughts before we go. Yeah, this has just been super helpful for me, you know, to get these questions from you guys and you're highlighting areas that I should think about. And I think both from a bird's eye perspective, but also as I go into trying to break the story for the pilot. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Get exclusive content, uh, including some uh, behind the scenes looks into the mentorship process that you won't get normally. Some more cool opportunities uh, like live events, things like that, merchandise, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thank you to Paul for coming in and being a part of this process. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 128. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And where can we find you, Paul? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Paul Poise. That's poor Poise with a Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And the 2019 script pipeline season is now open, and the deadline for this year's screenwriting and TV writing seasons is May 1st. Script pipeline finalists and winners receive extensive long-term industry exposure, and they have one of the biggest grand prizes for writing worldwide at $50,000. So learn more at scriptpipeline.com. And next week, we are releasing our big WandaCon panel of this year, which is all about comics and TV writing. So we've assembled, almost like the Avengers, this huge panel of writers and producers from your favorite shows and comics to discuss sort of how these two medium intersect. So that's going to be amazing. Uh, if you can't make it to the panel itself, then take a listen next week. And we'll see you then. Catch you then.